0: Sometimes taking care of a patient is the easy part. Talking to bystanders, parents, and loved ones can be the hardest part of medicine. What are the best strategies for hard conversations and challenging communication environments? That's the question for this episode of Country Hits, Rural Trauma, From the Scene to the Emergency Department. I'm Jonathan Kohler, a pediatric surgeon, pediatric trauma medical director, and your host for this short podcast series. Our experts in challenging communication are Drs. Dave Schatz and John Rose. Dave is a trauma surgeon and professor of surgery at the University of California, Davis. He's been an EMS medical director for over 20 years, first with Miami-Dade Fire Rescue and then with the Sacramento Metropolitan Fire District. John is an emergency medicine physician and EMS medical director and professor of emergency medicine at the University of California, Davis. Here we go. So, David and John, welcome. Uh, thank you so much for joining us here today to talk about what I think is one of the most important and and also sort of one of the least discussed topics around trauma care, which is how we talk about it, both to to patients and to parents and to each other about, you know, the crazy things that we sometimes see. And I'm sure you guys have had this experience, too. Like, I, I often am asked when I tell people I'm a pediatric Surgeon and I'm into trauma. I'm asked, well, what's the worst thing you guys have ever seen? And that question I find is never about, or my answer to the question is never about what does it look like when someone's run over by a train, right? It's, it's the emotional damage that you see and the people who are left after a bad trauma. That's what stays with me. And I think it's something that we could all do a better job sort of talking about, starting from that first moment that we arrive on scene all the way through, you know, when we as healthcare providers are sort of decompressing at the end of the day. Let's jump in. Let's just start at the beginning, right? For those EMTs, those, those EMS providers who arrive on scene and there's a, a bad trauma you know, someone has been run over by a train, and there's some people sort of standing around, like, how do you manage the people standing around?
1: That's a great question. And thank you so much for having me on. And I think the your intro to this topic is super important. I would agree with you that especially those of us who work in larger centers, we kind of get used to A lot of things, which has its own damage, but many times, if you're in a rural area, or these are infrequent events, or you're a volunteer fire department in a rural area, and you show up at one of the a thing that you know is going to be in the newspaper, or worse, on CNN, there is a whole level of other emotional, like you said, and as well as technical things that come into play. And you're exactly right. As for all first responders, there's a whole not to be sexist or anything, but I would call it this macho thing that you have to just tuck it away somewhere. It's what we do. But we know that's not the right way to do it. And I think for first responders who approach these scenes, it's most of the time when you get a call, as if if you ask most EMTs and paramedics, they already know when they hear the call, like, okay, I'm going to be getting out here as fast as I can versus I'm going to stay on scene and do things. They've already made up their mind, which is one of the dilemmas that comes up in many medical EMS conditions is, you know, you don't want them to do that too early. But I think for the first responders, when they get to this, to how to approach a scene, many are experts at this and how to decide who's actually a victim or part of that. How do you clear the scene? It is challenging nowadays. We just had a vehicle fire here in rural Yellow County where the person was still in the burning vehicle and police was the first responder. CHP was the first responder on scene. And there were five people outside of the vehicle and they were all just filming the vehicle with their phones. No one was helping rescue the person out of the vehicle. So sometimes when you arrive on these scenes, it's a very confusing component, especially if you're in a rural area where you don't get train accidents or major car events with burning cars and you see bystanders and you don't, are you Are you part of the event? Are you you know walking around and you're injured and trying to triage those people versus are you just a gawker who got out of their car and this is the newest Facebook post you want to be? You know, it's very complicated out there when they show up on scene, both for when police shows up on scene initially and they're and medical and fires rolling. And then when fire gets on scene and they have to make sure the scene is secure. And so when these first responders, they're looking around just making sure people are not going to get hit, everyone's safe. And so it can be very, very complicated on these scenes to even filter through that. You haven't even gotten to the point of now when you actually approach the victims who aren't ambulatory and stuff like that, where it can be challenging.
2: I agree a thousand percent, and I think you know, we as hospital-based providers see some pretty bad injuries, but we forget that the guys in the field have seen the patients that never even made it to us, so the ones who are really, really injured, I mean, decapitated, some of those horrible injuries, and you, what you said about tucking it away is definitely true. I think, you know, we're all just, we're studs and we can just handle all stuff, but uh, having been worked with FEMA for a long time and all these structure collapses, We had a mandatory debrief a couple days after coming home. Initially, there was a mandatory PTSD kind of debriefing. There was, I don't need that. But what we found was that by doing a debriefing on a on a, a board, you know, the pros and cons, that was actually the PTSD debrief. When you got to voice all the things that just didn't go right, and that really that was really very effective. So getting back to the station after the fact. And talking about what went great with this call versus what didn't go great with this call, and that gives everybody a chance just to talk, as opposed to saying, "You know, I feel a little uneasy because I saw this guy severely injured." Just by talking about the scene, they were able to just get it off their chest, I guess. And you get your partners who are voicing maybe some of the same thing. The other part of it is that trauma is the small portion of what EMS does, and it's one thing to go up on a patient who's, I don't know, got a sprained ankle or is has, is uh, has asthma. The traumas are visually distracting, I guess. So it's very really easy to see, for instance, a burn patient or a car fire you mentioned, that patient who's got, who has some bad burns, but you forget about the rest of the injuries. And again, it's distracting. You get excited because you see this trauma thing, but you forget to control the scene. You forget to assess all the potentially life-threatening injuries because you get distracted. That's where the professional, the one who actually sees it a lot, over it kind of gets around that visually distracting stuff, it stays focused and, and works on, the, on the, the victim itself. And then of course, what you said earlier too about the crowd control, You really have to get that crowd under control and away uh, into a a safe distance, but at the same time, take care of your patient.
1: I just wanted to add to Dave's point about the critical incident debriefing, the CID, and we can give a link for your listeners. There's um there's pretty good evidence that exactly what Dave described is the way to do it because some systems have tried to set up with a professional counselor who's not part of the group coming in, and we're going to have a meeting, and then you you know sit around and you talk to this counselor, and it's been found clearly that that does not help. Mm -hmm. It is much better to do an immediate you know, hot wash with your own peers to share your your own feelings. So, you know, we do that here in the emergency department. And Dave knows when we have a death, we do a, a moment of silence and we have a reading for everyone who dies, our trauma patients, because it's a wonderful way for the team to feel that but also we realize it's the best way for us to debrief is to be with each other because we understand it and so as dave described is exactly the what the data shows is the most effective technique is to be together pretty soon right after the event with your peers and it doesn't even have to be moderated it can just be there's a command structure there's a you know the, the captain or whoever's the command structure says hey we're all going to come together and so yeah i would support that
0: 100% right i mean you just don't want to feel alone, right? Like you don't want to feel like you're carrying these burdens alone. And and that makes so much sense that having your own team, the people who are there with you, who, who you don't have to explain it to, right. Who saw the same thing. You can talk about it and and frame it as like a, that was really rough. How do we make it better? What went well? What did not go well? Like gives you that sense of going forward much better than like, you know, having, and having done both, I totally agree. Right. Having someone come in, A month later, and get you all together to you know sing kumbaya. What about the the role of the EMS and an emergency department in breaking bad news to loved ones? This is something that sometimes happens on scene, and I know I've you know had to do sticks with me vividly. You know those phone calls or those trips to the waiting room to talk to patients or family members who you know where there's been a a death
2: yeah unfortunately as a trauma surgeon i've had many shares of deaths and having to talk to families it is never easy you never get good at it but one thing i did learn is that i was told and learned is that you can never just kind of use those softer words you really just have to say he's died uh, because the family's hoping and kind of translating what your words are that might be softer into some degree of hope. So you really just have to say that's, it, they're not, they passed away or they you have to say they died. In the hospital, it's a little easier because I've got a, you know, a chaplain there. I got a social worker for there and I can just walk in, give the bad news and walk out as the family's falling apart and the social worker is dealing with that. So. And that's just crushing to me anyway. I've had my, my days of, of tears breaking those news. So it's hard, very, very hard. At the scene, we don't want dead bodies being transported. That's a risk to providers, both air and ground. So we've done a good, pretty good links not to define which patients should not be transported and be pronounced at the scene. But it does create a huge extra issue for the the EMS providers on scene because now there's family there, so it's a pretty uncontrolled situation. And sometimes it is just safer, and we said that, that if it's safer for the crews to transport the, the victim and then we'll pronounce them at the hospital, do so. But ideally, we're, we avoid that code three transport, or worse, a helicopter transport on a, on a victim who's got 0% ch- percent chance of surviving, sorry, and it's really dead of the scene. It's a degree of training. It's a huge degree of comfort level too. So the brand new medic or those with not much experience doing it, they're much more likely to transport, and I thoroughly understand that.
1: Yeah, I would agree wholeheartedly with Dave for all his comments. And this is actually an emerging area in pediatrics, and I'm not a... Pediatric emergency physician, like a lot of my group, but I, from the EMS side, as the EMS medical director and fellowship, EMS fellowship director, I, you know, I, in understanding pediatric cardiac arrests versus medical cardiac arrests versus, versus trauma arrests, there is, you know, an emphasis on both, certainly adults, but even on kids now, staying on scene with high performance CPR, managing ventilations early in the kids. So crews are on scene longer. You know, the family many times will be screaming at them, why are you not driving to the hospital now? And they have to carefully understand how to explain the best chance for your child is that I start the treatment right now, that if I'm in an ambulance, I'm not doing treatment. And it's best that we start right now. But that, as Dave puts on, that goes on. I think it's super hard for crews to pronounce kids. And they're given authorization to do it. They can call base and do it. But it is so, unless it's very clear. But I think, I understand, it would be hard, especially if you're in a rural community and you see rarely this. I mean, this is not, a, this is a very high-level thing. And if you don't, as Dave explained, if you don't have other people to come help, if it's just your small volunteer fire department, this is not a, a hill to die on or take over. I, I understand when they say we just have to get there. But that being said, I think crews are, are now faced with a whole new level of they can pronounce people on the scene. And if the scene's safe, you know, they're not going to be threatened or whatever as, you know, both adults and children. I do think that, you know, we're all learning and I, you know, I think we all practice where in trauma, it's harder to let the parents watch or the family watch because there's a lot of really intense things going on that many times it's not appropriate. But in the medical side, you know, with medical codes and children and more with adults, if we have family there, we will, if it's appropriate, our social worker will bring them in and let them watch the resuscitation, which I've always found is very helpful in pronouncing people because th- then they're participating and understanding why we're stopping. But that's, I wouldn't be, do that on the field. I mean, they're watching anyway, but I would You know, I understand it's, it's a hot mess out there sometimes and they have to decide, but it's, it is a more complicated world now with this.
0: Yeah. I I really initially was so shocked the first time I saw like families brought in to a resuscitation, you know, CPR in progress on a child. And, and I was like, what are we thinking? Like bringing the parents in, but. You know, you see it and you're like, oh, of course, like this is this person's child. Like they should be present for this, what is likely to be, you know, last moments of their child's life, you know, and, and it actually does. It makes it easier to have everybody there kind of as a team, including those, those parents or, you know, the, the loved ones who are present with someone when you're doing a resuscitation, whether that's a controlled circumstance in the emergency department or whether it's because, you know, you're in their living room, as long as it can be safe, right? Data's clear Data on security. That. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. And the data, you know, the the grief of the parents, of the the witnesses, the data is pretty clear that their bereavement process and grief is much better, less complicated grief events after one year and as such. So not only does it kind of make sense, like you said, it supports that people actually, as painful as that is, they actually do better, you know, with
2: that. I've always kind of questioned that because, again, as being a trauma surgeon, like you mentioned, I do a whole lot more invasive things like opening a chest or something. I really don't want the family seeing.
1: <laughs> um, right. That's why it's more medical ones than trauma ones. Like I said, it's not as common in the uh, trauma ones. It's a yeah. little too, uh, it's, as they say, there's certain things you should just never, the making of sausage or as the analogy goes, there's certain things you should just never see.
0: Let, let's shift to just sort of a, a, a little bit cheerier note and talk about how we talk to Patients who uh, are kind of difficult, ways to talk to little kids, patients with dementia, patients where there's language barriers or deaf patients, any tricks you guys have developed through the years on, on how to communicate with patients who maybe don't communicate in the normal way that we can have just talking in a podcast?
2: Yeah, I think you just have to try to put yourself in their position. And this is uh, for any patient who basically lost, just lost control of their life and putting their, hand, their life in somebody else's hands. Now this patient can't communicate, as we do, and so they're scared. So you just have to take a step back and think, okay, that's just maybe a little frustrating because they're not talking to me, they're not being cooperative, but you just have to keep that calm voice and just reassure them that what you're doing is in their best interest, however you want to say that. But as soon as you get riled up, it's just going to escalate, it's not going to work. Just remember, they're scared.
1: And, and I think, you know, people want to be heard and understood. You know, so people, where it's a different language, or it's a young person, a child, they just want to be heard and understood. And if it's a cognitive disorder, someone who has cognitive impairment for whatever reason, it's just they want to just feel as safe as you can make them, which sometimes is, is hard. I always see this as a team sport. I try not to carry this load by myself, that I'm going to be the splainer of everything to everybody. I try to, whatever assistance I would have in a... My team, if I, if I'm a first responder and I have my fire captain, every, I try to do this and try to get whatever team approach to this I can, which is really family, loved ones, someone who can translate, you know, the parental figure, as long as they're, you know, not threatening the scene, the surrogate for someone who has Alzheimer's. This is really the, it's a team sport. So you can be making contact with a patient trying to assess things and you have another part of your team trying to find the, The daughter who's the DPOA or the, or some, you know, it's just, it's a team sport, as I would say, to try to not have to solve it. And I think if you stay with the exact points Dave brought up, it's that people are scared and they want to be heard and understood that that's really the the central goal.
2: 100% agree about the team thing. But at the same time, if you've got five people descending on this patient and you can't even see the sky for all the people looking at him. I think you find the person who connects to the patient. And everybody else kind of backs away a little bit. The standard patient probably you can get away with everybody being there, but that those particular populations you're talking about find somebody who can connect and everybody else just kind of back off a little bit so they're not feeling trapped.
0: Yeah, in peds, there's a really popular concept now called one voice, which is where one person, and oftentimes in the operating room, that person will be a child life specialist, but obviously we don't have those available on scenes. But, you know, someone who's sort of, sole focus is on talking to the child and helping them feel comfortable. But yeah, I think it's so important, right? That find the parent, find the, you know, familiar face for these people so that it's not the the most scary moment of their life. They're also surrounded by strangers who are in masks, you know, and they, who they can't necessarily understand what they're saying, particularly, you know, people who have sensory impairments, you know, and masks I know have been really hard on the deaf population, for instance, and then trying to create that quiet space and those familiar objects to I think, particularly, like we see this with kids a lot. Like, it really helps for them to have their stuffed animal or you know their favorite show on an iPad for transport. You know, in a quiet, controlled environment. Like they, they like everybody else will pick up on on all that anxiety, and you want to try to just make them feel like everything is safe and under control. Right. I, mean, I think that's true for children and adults a lot. Yeah, you're exactly
1: right. And and Dave's point, I would agree with. It's making sure that you're limiting the contact people. But a classic example I see, I think we see now in our society and people have seen in the media is when we have people with very bad mental health events occurring that are safety events also, you know, they're, they're under duress and their behavior is also causing, you know, instability in the scene and how communities respond to that, you know, and these are people that it's not good to walk in with everyone with heavy hands If you can avoid it, you know, as the police already would say is like, they they don't want to be the social workers when you call. They don't really want to be the first person to talk to someone who's having a mental health crisis and threatening. They don't want to be that either. You know, as we say, that's where I come back to the team sport. It's having someone who's the expert. You know, if you have mental health navigators in your region, but if you live in a rural community, it may be just the fire department and one sheriff that shows up to the household. But I think it's still trying to stay true to the same principles. People want to be heard you know, they're scared. And even when they're in a mental health crisis, you know, you're trying to de-escalate things and not, you know, make it harder. But it's, it is a very, very complicated sometimes. And, you know, if someone's wielding a weapon at the scene, and, you know, getting that that scene calm, it never does good going hard the first time, just like with our own patients, you know, it never,
0: as they say, you know, take your pulse first, and don't make it worse. And, and I think that that's kind of what apply to this. For those sort of frequent flyer patients, you know, the the mental health patients who come in frequently and speaking with, you know, a number of rural providers over the years, a lot of the, you know, a lot of their concerns are around often autistic patients who get involved in self-injurious behavior or just are having communication challenges and it's not clear whether they're in pain or not. And so they, they often, you know, these patients with communication difficulties, not necessarily cognitive difficulties, but just different ways of approaching the world are frequent flyers with these with these services. I mean, do you think there's a role for sort of establishing, like pre-establishing a relationship with EMS or police for families who have kids who are, you know, neurodiverse or, you know, relatives who are known to be mentally ill? I'm not a
1: pediatric expert, so I'm not the right person on your podcast to
0: fully address
1: that. There are many EMS systems and departments that have patients who do come in a lot, have repetitive events that do have, usually have hopefully some kind of care arrangement or whatever. It really depends on your locale. And if your locale allows those things to happen, sometimes the statutes make this hard. Like if people call 911, it activates a different system. And so it's, you know, it's having the right people around. I think it's a wonderful idea if. You have someone who struggles, let's say an autistic young adult who's no longer small, who when they are angry and not being heard, you know, it's a it's a big it's a powerful event that, you know, there is some kind of pre-done plan if they can. not I think that would be a wonderful way, but I'm not an expert on how those actually work or get implemented yeah in the same way
2: I'm not sure I know that if you're in a smaller community you have one or two or three people identified maybe you can establish that relationship but if you're in a big city and the fire service has got you know 50 units how are you going to know all those people we all know who they are because they come to us as a hospital or the the EMS the providers transport them frequently but to actually establish that relationship, I'm not sure how, how that would work.
0: But yeah, I mean, I yeah. think that's an area where rural EMS is sort of has an advantage, right? Because like right. half the time you're going to know or even be related to, you know, the people you're going to see on these calls, which brings with it like an additional level of complexity too, right? I mean, if, mm-hmm. if you're in a small community and you're taking care of of your neighbor, how do you maintain that professional versus personal boundary?
1: That is a unique part of a, of a um, rural is, you know, people tend to be, they see people as people because they know them in the community. But you're right. It may be, it may be your high school teacher. You're now the firefighter and this was your high school teacher and your high school teacher is having a really hard time in a mental health day event. Later in their life, and you're on scene, and oh, yeah, I mean, I could, this is, I could imagine this to be, have many, many layers that could make it complicated. I would say it's probably very important that rural providers be sensitive to what they're walking into that way.
2: I think as Kyle, kind of, you know, we all are, work with our so-called uniforms on, whether they're scrubs or white coats, or whatever, and we have our personality at work, and we're focused on, on medicine, and then we go home. And we take all that off and we're with our family and our dogs and we may or may not talk about what we, what we saw today. But the point there is that we, we do kind of change our mindset a little bit. So I think when you put that uniform on as a volunteer firefighter, volunteer EMS provider, where, wherever you are and you're responding to that person you, you know, as a, as a person. That's one thing to be social, but now you're in a professional role. You just have to change your mindset to to be that professional and just back off the, the personal side a little bit and now you just you're taking care of a patient, a patient you know, but you're there to provide that medical care.
1: Yeah, we have an agreement at my home regarding this. My wife and I years ago I've I've been married to you for three, four years. We agreed long ago that when I come home from work, I don't get asked to make a decision for the first forty-five minutes. I get to just sit and not make a decision. And in exchange, I will not come home and talk to anyone like I'm at work. But that's our that's our agreement. When I walk in the door, I need that contract.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Let's just talk. You know, as we wrap up, I, I this has been so great, and I think it's talked about. You know, like we've talked about everything from the sort of. Importance of, you know, physician heal thyself, right? Like starting in to recognize that like these are hard events. They're hard events for patients. They're hard events for family and they're hard events for us. So we all have to look out for each other. We've talked about how to break bad news and. And how to just be direct and how to really dig into these hard situations and not try to, you know, escape the bad news and just to be direct about it. And we've talked about some tricks for talking to difficult populations. Before we go, I I just want to, I think we should just reinforce, like, the other real value of communication on scene, which is actually a little bit more of a medical thing, is how how it can contribute to our history and how important it is to get that good history on scene. So we have a patient who is unresponsive, but there's some family members around. What should we be making sure that we get to know from those family members before we put that patient in an ambulance and take them to the hospital? Like I think there's there's so much value in what we can potentially learn on scene from people who are there, just to like how we care for the patient when they arrive in the emergency department. You know, the the medical side of this and the traumatic side, I mean, Dave can talk about the,
1: the scene, you know, how scene photos and the such play into the decision-making. I think, yeah, if we're not in a silo, you know, we're not in our own little silos. We are one giant group. Uh, the more that we can learn, you know, and many times you'll have, I'll have first responders who know that they're grabbing all the pill bottles, they're getting all the medical records, they're trying to get everything trying to know that for this patient they're going to need all these things. All of that is so so important and I know when first responders come into the emergency department and they're giving us report they sometimes feel like we're not listening and it's cuz our mind now is switched over to trying to figure it out but but yes whatever you I mean the communication of what you know who we can call what they found out um, when were they last seen? You? All those things, if they can be detectives for us, it's very, very, very helpful.
2: So, I get a, we get a patient who's unresponsive, but to us, it's a complete unknown. We have no idea what happened. We weren't at the scene. Uh, so, there might be little scene clues that might help us a little bit, but not knowing is this guy severely bradycardic because he's on beta blockers or because he's got a, you know, an injury? So I, that little, that whatever detective work they can do at the scene to bring out information. Again, the traumas are a little more uh, shorter scene time. So we don't want to waste a bunch of time on scene collecting pill bottles if we can avoid that, but have that information. And I think what's really important for the medics when they get to the hospital, like John said, with they think we're not listening, but I think we really need to make sure that they know we're listening at to the point that I have, I have told patients or my my team waiting for the patient to come in, I say, when the parents get here, I want dead silence. I want to hear their story. Yes, we got to jump on the patient and get going, but we've got to hear what they said. And I think that needs to be emphasized in a lot of emergency departments that uh, we need to hear the story before we just start work on the patient because they may be telling us something valuable that we may not hear.
1: And if I could dovetail on that, I think Dave and I can both think of many circumstances when we were together, where some patient was a very sick patient And they thought maybe it was a trauma. And so the trauma is there and we're there and we are getting the story. And Dave and I are looking at each other, realizing this is probably not a trauma. This is probably a medical event that occurred. And it's really their story that comes in. And or we've had many medical events that we thought was a medical CPR till we rolled the patient over and we saw the stab wound that wasn't found. You know, those stories are everywhere. But it is, you know, it's, it's it's staying with their practice patterns, like examining the patient, getting the history. But yeah, and sometimes it's really hard to sort out where both Dave and I are standing over the patient looking at each other like, okay, I don't quite know what this is yet. You know?
0: That's such a great point. And actually, I think, you know, in all of the difficult communication situations that we have in medicine, I think that the communication in the trauma bay between the the pre-hospital personnel and the emergency department and surgery personnel may be among the most difficult, right? Because it's an incredibly high stress environment. It's two or three or four teams who each have their own objectives and each want to kind of get started doing their thing. And it's so critical to take that moment to listen to EMS and hear their story. It creates this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy if we don't right? Because we don't listen. So they don't think we're listening. So they don't bother telling us things. So we don't think they have anything to tell us. So we don't listen, right? And yet there's so much valuable information to be heard about like what it was like on scene. How long was this extrication? Like how, what did it look like? Were their deaths on scene? Like the, all these things change our algorithms in the way that we think in, uh, of working up these patients. I, you'd mentioned something and I'd like to, to hear David, what you think about this. Like, you know, it's all well and good to have a word picture of a scene. But what about a picture, picture of a scene? Good. I was just
2: going to say that. Um, yeah. So many years ago, when we were actually using Polaroids, they uh, would bring pictures of the cars in. The reality is was we saw those pictures after we took care of the patient. And it really didn't change anything because we took care of the patient first and then we got to go look at the pictures and thought, oh, wow, that's, that's a pretty bad car accident. Uh, but it honestly did not change how we took care of the patient. Mm-hmm. Um, and cars, especially these days, we talk about having a, a steering wheel bent, for instance. If that was a 1965 Cadillac, those were made out of steel. And if you bent <laughs> that with your chest, that's a big deal. But they're made to collapse now. And the car may look horrible. But the the compartment, the passenger compartment in in cars now is made to withstand a lot of force with all the airbags and seatbelts and just the the construction. So it may look horrible in a picture, but the patient has minimal injuries or potentially vice versa. So I don't think that that taking time at the scene to take pictures and then taking time for us to look at the pictures before we start taking care of the patient is really that valuable.
0: Yeah,
1: I would agree with Dave completely. I don't find the... And I and his point's the excellent one. I don't know if you've ever seen a newer car, you know, like cars that are built like a Tesla, when they're in an accident, it it goes away. It basically disintegrates, except for the passenger compartment. But no one gets you know, the way their airbags and no one's ever hurt. So it can be I, I would agree if it's if it's a Ford Impala from nineteen sixty eight and you know, that's a lot of kinetics that went into the car because it's made of steel, but the cars now are meant to displace all the kinetics before it ever gets to the passenger compartment. So, I it, it's it's harder to use as like, oh, I'm going to do more because of this picture because I kind of do the same thing for everyone a- a- anyway. Right. You know, the patient kind of dictates the... The anatomic and physiologic complaints tend to dictate more than a photograph of just a mechanism for me. And I would presume for you, both of you as trauma surgeons, it would be the, the same kind of thing.
0: I totally agree. I the one area where i think it might be helpful um although i will say like i've seen a lot more pictures shown to me on you know cell phones of car crashes where it's, again it's like it's hard to say like what does that mean that there's everything's crumpled it's supposed to do that i do think it might be interesting to to look at the value of seeing a picture of what someone fell off of because you often get the story in kids of like oh it was a 20 foot fall and then you know you actually like see a picture in the news sometimes of like what it was that they actually fell off of or like they 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 tell you the brand of trampoline it was and you realize it's actually only three feet off the ground you know but like there's so much adrenaline in those moments of like what just happened that you can one story becomes three basically and and having a picture there might change the way we we think of a workup although honestly like i think we always have to you know be vigilant and, you know, going back to the ABCs and, you know, you know, you can die from a three foot fall just as well as you can die from a 30 foot fall.
2: The patient fell out of a second story window onto cement as opposed to a big fat bush. Hopefully the injuries are are lesser with the bush. At the same time, I'm still going to do my same workup.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree. Like, don't, don't take time to take pictures because like, we're going to have to sort of do the, the workup that we do regardless of like any photographic evidence at the scene probably.
2: I think you've been really, really careful on the EMS side because lately there have been pay, pictures have been taken by EMS and then out on the internet because I think it was cool. cool a call I'd to down today. That's a big no-no, especially if there's a patient, any kind of patient confidentiality in there. I've so really careful about that now.
1: Right. Yeah, that's exactly. a great point. Uh, it's called acute cellular itis, where uh, EMS, you know, will take photos thinking that when it's on their personal phone, it's not within any kind of HIM stored system. And I would just say any first responders who are listening to this, especially if you're in a rural area where these are these are rare events, so this is like a big deal in your in your community, be very careful about thinking that you, you should do that. There's been a, a lot of very bad cases and people losing their licensure and things like
0: that for that violation. So be, they should be very cautious with that. Yes. Right. And not just for Kobe Bryant, right? Like this is you, right. you you take this to show your buddies and say like, oh, look at this incredible thing I saw. And even if you don't see faces, right, like particularly in rural communities, there's only been one big car crash this week, right? right. Like everybody's yeah. going to know who you're talking about. So you got to be super right. careful about that sort of thing, right?
1: Though I do use cell phones, if you're texting while you're on the ambulance gurney, then I usually you're about ready to go, be discharged. So, I you do use the the litmus test of how many text lines you can do, the faster I can discharge you from the
0: department. If you're able. Now, that's something different with PEDS. A kid will play games on an iPad while in intense hemorrhagic shock. Without, without, yeah. with hemoparagia. It's like, exactly. it's the last thing to go after heart rate. Yeah. Right, right. Well, kids don't stutter, you know, yeah. but adults yeah. do. They- Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's sort of that cross-leg sign, right? Just if you can talk and, and engage and it's always a, a good sign. Well, thank you both so much for, for joining me. I think this has been such a great and illuminating conversation, such a good reminder of like the, the tools that we have out there and just the importance of, of having these conversations, of talking to each other and even just, you know, talking to you about uh, my own experiences in managing some of these difficult situations. I, I leave this, uh, this brief talk feeling better. So thank you guys so much for, for taking the time. Thank you so much,
1: Jonathan. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Country Hits, Rural Trauma from the Scene to the Emergency Department is a production of Wisconsin's South Central Regional Trauma Advisory Council. Go Badgers! If you enjoyed this episode, there are seven more, so check those out too. And please, rate and review the show so others can find it. Most importantly, tell your friends. This podcast is produced by me, Jonathan Kohler, and Ben Ethan, with production assistance from Terry Hoover. It's mixed and edited by the great J.P. Swenson, Special thanks to Lori Silverberg and Nicole Jennings at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and to Shin Hirose, Diana Farmer, Joe Galante, and Nate Cooperman at the University of California, Davis. And an extra special thanks to Dan Williams and the members of the South Central ARTAC for deciding they wanted this podcast and what they wanted it to be about. Thanks for listening. Stay safe out there.